How I love to study the Bible. Amen? What's amazing about the Bible, what's amazing about the Gospels, the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, is not only does, does the Bible in all of its 66 books communicate one unified message, but so do the Gospels. And in the same way, the 66 library of books that we call the Bible communicate a unified message about who God is and what he has done through his son to save sinners like me and you, the Gospels also communicate a very clear, unified message, and yet in their unity, there is diversity. In their uniform message, they all, through their historical investigation, eyewitness accounts, what they themselves saw in the life of Christ, they highlight different vantage points. They communicate to the church then and the church forever of what Jesus has done, of who he is, and the victory that we have in him. In fact, that's why there's differing miracles. Sometimes there's a miracle in Matthew that's not in Mark, but in Luke. So what's so interesting about today's study is that there's only two miracles that are shared in all four Gospels. There's only two miracles that are communicated in every single one. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Isn't that interesting? Isn't that fascinating? The first one should make a whole lot of sense. The first miracle that is shared and told and proclaimed in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John is the resurrection. The resurrection, how our God has sent his son and how his son who died on a cross is now alive, risen and reigning forevermore. Hallelujah. That the one who is dead is now alive. The one who is crucified is now healed, whole, and risen. That we as Christians have faith and hope that life goes beyond this life, that there's life even in the face of death because of our Savior and King, Jesus. You want to know the other miracle? It's this one. There's something about the feeding of the 5,000, whereas each one of the gospel writers felt it absolutely crucial to communicate the resurrection, each one of them also thought it was very, very important that the church, not only then, but the church forever would understand this passage, would understand this miracle. So what is it about the feeding of the 5,000 that every single gospel writer wanted to include in their biography and their testimony of Christ? Now, I don't want to assume that everyone here is fully on board with not only the moral teachings of Christ, but the miraculous signs of Christ. Perhaps you come here and you're thinking, well, I can appreciate Jesus for his historical value. I can appreciate how perhaps Christianity gives comfort to people. I can appreciate all the hospitals that were built, all the schools that were raised, all the good that Christianity has done for society throughout history. But friends, what I want you to hear is that the primary message of Christianity is not how the Bible or these religious principles can make your life better and make society better. Friends, that would be a very nice human story. But there's nothing merely human about this story. That would be a very natural understanding of the Bible, but the Bible is altogether beginning to end from Genesis to Revelation supernatural. In fact, we could turn none other than to 1 Corinthians 15, where the Apostle Paul and the early church they bank 
everything on a miracle. Everything is based on a supernatural act of God. They base everything on the resurrection. So it's not by accident that the resurrection is communicated in all four Gospels and the feeding of the 5,000. Listen to this. 1 Corinthians 15, the Apostle Paul says, this should be startling words if we've never heard this before. Paul says, if Christ has been raised, has not been raised, if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is useless and so is your faith. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, the Bible says your faith is futile because you are still dead in your sins. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people the most to be pitied. Wow! Paul just said if Jesus is not alive, if Jesus' bones are still in the ground, in some tomb somewhere in Jerusalem, then close the church doors, stop with the religious pageantry, stop with the hypocrisy, because it's all for nothing. This has always been the message. And that's why today, when you come and you try to understand some of these miracles of Jesus, there will be some more humanistic, secular, liberal scholars that will approach text like this with the feeding of the 5,000, and we'll try to come up with practical, natural, normal ways to answer it, understand it. The truth is, you can't. Truth is, Paul says, if Christ is still dead, then Christianity should end, that our faith is futile. So we believe as Christians that God has risen Christ, and that in rising Christ, that we will also experience the resurrection from death into eternal life. So if God could raise Christ from death after he had been scourged, after he had been whipped, after he had a crown of thorns pressed onto his head, after he was nailed to a Roman torture device, after his heart stopped beating, after his mind stopped flickering, after he was dead and buried three days in the tomb, if he is alive again, what is it to God to multiply some bread and some fish? You see how this works? It's altogether supernatural. In fact, the book you're holding in your hand is a miraculous gift from God. All of it is meant to communicate that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is God the Son. He is Emmanuel, God with us. And when He reveals His glory, miraculous things happen, not only outside of us, but inside of us giving us not only food for our mouths and our bellies, but salvation and satisfaction for our hearts and our souls. Amen? So here's the context of the miracle. Let's walk through the passage together. We're going to go through three motions. The context of the miracle, the pretext of the miracle, and then the missed message of the miracle. Verse 1. All eyes back on the Bible. Here we go. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. This is the context of the miracle. Let's pause right there. So John, once again, he's rooting this in a real place. He's rooting this in historical fact. He is telling people this happened by the Sea of Galilee. Now, all the Jews would understand what that is, but he's also saying it's the Sea of Tiberias for all the non-Jews. 
those that were Roman or Gentile saying, hey, listen, this is where this happened. This isn't fable. This isn't myth. It literally happened right here. You could punch it into your GPS and then you could go find it yourself. Not only that, but as we mentioned, the other gospels give some context as well. This is after a very long day of ministry. This is after people have been following Jesus, pressing up against Jesus. And yes, Jesus and the disciples are weary. You can read about it in Mark chapter 6. It says in Mark chapter 6, verse 31, And Jesus said to them, his disciples, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. They were so pressed upon. They were so needed. The people were so desperate for Jesus, he didn't even have a chance to eat. Mark chapter 6, verse 32 says, And they went away in a boat. They got on a boat. They went on a boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now many saw them going, recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns. And they got there ahead of Jesus. When they went ashore, they saw a great crowd, and he, Jesus, had compassion on them because they were, quote, like sheep without a shepherd. And Jesus began to teach them many things. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, this is a desolate place, and the hour is now late. It's a long day. How many of us have had long days? How many of us feel pressured and pulled and overwhelmed? So did our Jesus. We get this, right? He is not only the Son of God, he's the Son of Man. Perfectly God and perfectly man. So Jesus Christ is tired, he's weary, he's worn, but the people are coming to him. When they hear that he's on a boat, he's trying to find some, uh, some peace, and he's trying to find some respite, they don't care. They run around the lake, and they meet him at the town. And what does that show you? We'll find out that this is a crowd of five thousand men friends not just men but women and children as well this is a crowd of like tens of thousands this is like the madison square garden emptying right after nick's game which is probably what they want to do anyway and then going through what's true going through the city going through manhattan and just walking through the streets it's a huge massive crowd they're desperate for healing and perhaps we can relate to that. Even today, 2,000 years later, even with all of our technological advancements, all of our medical advancements, how many of us know the desperation of needing to be healed? Perhaps we have chronic pain that just won't go away. You try to numb it, you try to treat it, it's just always with you. It's a constant, nagging, awful companion. Perhaps you get a terrifying diagnosis and your mind automatically goes to the worst, darkest place. Perhaps you've been fighting something and you don't know how to beat it, and there's no problems, there's no answers to this disease. Or, Lord, have mercy. Can you imagine this? Some of us have been there. You have a child who's sick, desperately sick. What is it to you to travel through multiple towns, to take him on your back, and cross through a sea to bring him to the one person that could perhaps heal him and give your family hope. Yes, they're desperate. They're desperate. Now, here's the challenge with this passage. Ready? 
John 6 begins with a miracle of Jesus feeding the 5,000 men, which is probably tens of thousands of people, begins with a huge, massive, arena, stadium-sized crowd. How does John 6 end? Only 12 disciples following him. What happened? Well, in between, there's Jesus walking on water, but Jesus speaks truth to the crowds. You see, when the crowds got the biggest, Jesus would heal them. He would feed them, but he would also speak as the king to them. And they wanted their bellies to be filled. They wanted their bodies to be healed. They wanted king, a king to come up and to throw off the tyranny of Rome and Caesar. But when it really came to believing in the Jesus, not that we want, but the Jesus that is, all of a sudden the crowd split up. We've been there, right? Come on, church. It's one thing to believe in Jesus during a holiday season, as we're going to see this is Passover. It's one thing to believe in the, the nice parts of Jesus, the parts that in our culture everybody loves Jesus for. He welcomes in the outcasts. He heals the lepers. He is kind and gracious to children, to women, to men, to the rich and the poor. Jesus loves. But then Jesus starts talking about how he is the only way to the Father. He talks, starts talking about his claim and his identity as God on earth. He starts talking about rules and laws and holiness. When people's bodies were healed and their bellies were full and they heard Jesus talk about how he is the bread of life, they didn't understand it and they didn't like it, they left. They weren't interested in the true spiritual reality of Christ's coming. That would be the context not only of this passage, but the whole chapter. The pretext is now in verse 4, all eyes back in the Bible. The story continues talking about the Passover. John chapter 6, verse 4, all eyes on Scripture. This is the word of the Lord. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, okay, so there's a conversation with Philip first. Where are we to buy bread so that people may eat? Verse 6, Jesus said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Verse 7, Philip answered him, 200 denarii would not buy enough bread for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, now it's Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Let's stop right there. Jesus wants to teach his disciples something. Before they see the miracle, he wants them to understand the message. By the way, the miracles always serve people, yes, but the real primary purpose of the miracles was to testify, was to proclaim the message of who Christ Jesus was. So here it is. Jesus, yes, it says, tests his disciples. And this test is more of a question. How many of us know that we learn the best when sometimes people ask us more questions, pull us out, and we could see and experience something before the answer is given to us easily and readily? Jesus wants to pull out the truth from his disciples. So he looks at his disciples and say, it's late, we're all tired, 
where are we going to go to buy food for these thousands and ten thousands of people? Because clearly Walmart is closed. What are we going to do? Where are we going to go? So we have Philip. Philip is the problem solver in the group. And every group, every family, every marriage has the problem solver. Whenever there's a problem, the problem solver does not want to hold hands, does not want to talk about feelings, does not want to have a committee meeting, does not want to draw this out and take in 17 different opinions. What does a problem solver want to do? Fix that problem. So he's looking around. He's literally counting heads. I mean, the situation's impossible. I mean, he should have just said, Jesus, I got nothing for you. But he's like, Jesus, all right, so let's say this. If I had 200 denarii, how many of you have denarii in your wallets right now? You have denarii with your dollars? A denarii was an entire day's worth of work, right? So it was, an, it was a day's worth of wages. So he's saying, if I worked for eight months, Jesus, by myself, without taking a break, worked every single day for eight months, I couldn't even give a taste, a morsel to this big, huge crowd. This Philip. It's Philip trying to understand an impossible problem with a practical solution. And that's why this is such a helpful reminder. I mean, listen, Philip saw Jesus turn the water into wine in the Gospel of John. Philip saw Jesus heal the royal official's son from a distance. And that's just in the Gospel of John. In the other Gospels, they're seeing miracles all over the place. How many of us, even though God has been so faithful and so good and so kind, when the problem presents itself, we tend to forget who's in our presence? Right? Philip's us. Well, God, we can't, we can't do this. Because look, X, Y, and Z, and then here's my calculator, and I have a degree in calculus, so that's just not possible. Philip says it's impossible. You know who else said it was impossible? Andrew. Andrew shows up. Now, there's two ways to understand Andrew's response. You can either understand it sarcastically, or you can understand it skeptically. It's almost like Andrew says, Jesus, I just walked through the crowd. And all of these people weren't planning ahead. All these people came because they wanted you to heal them, but none of them packed the lunch. All I could find is this little kid that has five loaves, barley bread. So barley bread was the bread of the poor. Small little loaves, like biscuits. All I could find was five barley loaves from this little kid and two fish. All I could find, Jesus, was this happy meal. How are we going to fill a stadium worth of people with a happy meal, Jesus? either sarcastic or it's skeptical. Either way, he clearly didn't see how it was going to happen. He couldn't see, you ready? How Jesus was going to supersize the Happy Meal. You can write that down. <laughs> Feel free to tweet that, put it on Facebook. He couldn't see the physical challenge. You know what the Bible says about our God? Philippians chapter 4, verse 19. My God will meet all of your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Our God will meet all of our needs. Does the Bible say we'll meet all of our greeds? No. There's some preachers on television that will say, yes, he will. They'll even say that's the point of this passage, that it's about you and God wants to make you richer and give you more stuff. Not sure. Ephesians chapter 3 goes on to say this, Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine according to his power that has worked within us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus through all generations forever and ever. Amen. You have Philip 
who's the first response. He said, it is impossible. This is what we would need. Then you have Andrew who says, it is impossible. This is what we have. There's a third response. It's Jesus. And he says, it is possible because let me show you who I am. And that's what he's about to do. He's about to reveal the miracle. But before he does that, we need to remember that there's a certain spiritual significance here. That all of us are like little children that come to Jesus with our needs, with our shortcomings, with our pressures and our problems, and all we could do for this huge hulking issue, this overwhelming problem, is offer up some scraps. We're all there, all of us. So I don't know how many of you like to go golfing. We have any golfers here? So uh, some of you know, oh, not many of you wanted to fess up to being a golfer. I understand that completely. If you ever want to learn humility, take up golf, right? You can read about it in the Bible and then practice it on the, on the, uh, on the holes. So I went golfing this week on my vacation. And uh, it was, of course, once again, a testimony to total depravity because over and over again, you learn how you stumble and fall. So as I was golfing, there was a short hole And sometimes we think that life is a matter of the long holes, the par fives, the 500 yarders. But no, life really is made or broken in those short little holes, those small decisions. So it was like an 80, 90 yard hole, short. But before the hole, there was this big moat around the green. There was water and big bushes, big weeds. I'm not kidding. Maybe I'm making this up a little bit, but like six foot weeds, right? So... I I thought to myself, if I don't get under this ball, then there's no way that this thing's not going in the water. So sure enough, I said a little prayer. I do a lot of praying in the golf course. (laughs) I didn't get under it. I got right through it and shot it right into the water. And then what happens? Of course, you feel like a horrible golfer and you're discouraged. Until, you're discouraged until when? What? You walk into the water, you walk into the moat, you walk into the rough, and you see what? Hundreds of balls back there. It is a golf ball cemetery. And not just golf balls. You see the fancy golf balls, so the people that had money. And you see the ratty golf balls, or the people that probably shouldn't be golfing because they can't afford it, right? And then you see the other golf balls. Some of them were pink, maybe for the ladies. One of them was a SpongeBob SquarePants ball. So even the kids were in the rough. Some of them were old balls. They've been there forever. Some of them look like they just went into the woods. What is my point here with all of this? All of this is just to say, when all the disciples could do was offer up the barley, the bread of the poor, all they could do in front of all of this need and all of these problems is to say, this is all we have. And God says, that's enough. Jesus Christ on the cross gave his whole self so that we could be atoned for our sin, so we could be reconciled with the Father, and so that we could give our whole self to him. Give him your weakness and watch what he can do to give you strength. All of us are in that moat. All of us are in that pit. The sooner we realize that, the more free we will be. Jesus performs the miracle, and we will conclude our study in verse 11 through 14. Then Jesus took the loaves, all eyes back on Scripture, And when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their full, he told his disciples, gather over, what does it say? The leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. 
So they gather them up, fill 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign they had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. And then verse 15, perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force and make him king, Jesus withdrew to the mountain by himself. The miracle was performed. Not only the miracle was performed, not only were people fed, but they were satisfied. This was a supernatural miracle from God. So one author, one pastor, John MacArthur, he says it like this. Think of it this way. This isn't man-made bread. This is heavenly bread. These are like biscuits. These are like divine biscuits. These are holy crackers. These are not touched by sin. These are uncursed crackers from heaven. These is, this is the best bread that you've ever tasted in your whole life. Panera's got nothing on this bread. Not only was there quantity, but there was quality. Not only was there provision, but what? Satisfaction. And it needs to be said and needs to be noted, how many of you can't focus while I'm holding this golf club? Just put it right there. That before Jesus performed the miracle, he said two words. He gave thanks. He said thank you. And that's a great practice for us, isn't it, church? While you're waiting, while you're pressing in, while you're hoping for God to open up some door, to provide, to, yes, even perform some miracle, what does that mean for us to say, God, my love for you and my gratitude for you is not hinging upon what I'm asking you to do? Jesus thanks God before the miracle. If we're waiting for God to open some door, what does it mean for Christians to start praising him in the hallway? That while we're waiting for that door to open, start praising him now. Start thanking him now. Because he is forever good. He is always good. But now something happens. Everyone's satisfied. Everyone is full. And now all of a sudden, everyone gets really, really authoritative and militant they come up to jesus and say jesus we want you to be our king and they're threatening to do it by force how did we go from hungry broken hurting desperate people to all of a sudden wanting to take jesus and make him king by force this is the missed meaning of this passage you see what was happening here this was the passover the Passover, where people remembered how God had passed over the sins of Israel because of the lamb's blood that was, that was slain. They remember how God delivered them through his servant Moses and liberated them from Pharaoh and from Egypt. This was the day of the most nationalistic pride for Israel. Friends, so important. Why? Because they just said, this is the prophet that we were promised. Deuteronomy 18 verse 18 says that God is going to raise up someone just like Moses and he will give him his words and that we should obey everything he commands. This is a fulfillment of prophecy in their minds. Not only is Jesus the new Moses, but Jesus is the new manna. What does it mean for us that our king could supernaturally do miracles, but also keep us well-fed and keep us healthy? No army on earth could defeat us. They're thinking only nationally. They're not thinking spiritually. They're thinking externally. 
They're not thinking internally. And this is exactly the battle that Jesus came to fight. In their groups of 50, yes, they're probably thinking of Deuteronomy 18, but perhaps they're also thinking of 2 Kings chapter 4, where Elisha, the, the follower of Elijah, did the same thing, a similar thing. He multiplied barley bread for 100 soldiers, and all of them fed, and all of them were well eaten, and they all had leftovers. They're instantly thinking, okay, this is the new Moses. We have new manna. Here's our new Elisha. Now it's time to make him our new David so he can do what we want and overthrow the tyranny of Rome and Caesar. But what did Jesus actually do? Think of it, friends. There were two times people offered to make or someone offered to make Jesus king. The first one was when Satan, during Jesus' temptation, 40 days in the desert, Satan says, if you bow to me and worship me, I will make you kings over every single kingdom you see. And he does not. He will not, because he will worship only his father, right? And now the people, the crowd is saying, we will make you our king. And Jesus, once again, retreats into the mountainside. Jesus knows who he is. He knows that he's the king. And this is how he ushers in his kingdom. What king do you know? that would lay down his life and die a brutal, humiliating death for his enemies so that they might live forever. This is what our king does because Jesus Christ has come so that he can multiply, provide, but also give an abundance of grace for his children who are lost in their sin. Greater than any Pharaoh, greater than any Caesar, there's a king that resides in our hearts that does more damage than any dictator, and that's the one that Jesus came to dethrone. That's the one that Jesus died so that that master of sin could fall and we could be free and liberated forever and ever. Wherever you've been, friends, whatever you've done, there's an abundance of grace, an abundance that just as Jesus multiplied the bread and the fish, there is ample grace to cover your sin, my sin, any sin. Would you just come to him, even if it's just a child's meal? Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your word. And God, we pray that your grace would apply your word to the hearts of your people. Lord Jesus, I know that many of us, we can attend church and then leave church and act as if nothing happened at church. We can come to church, hear about the miracles of Jesus, hear about the supernatural power of our God, and then approach our problems as if the world does, with no hope, with no faith, with no belief. So God, we need to turn from this. Your word calls it repentance. So here's my prayer for us, church, and I invite you to pray along with me. If you could sense the Lord is working in your heart, speaking some truth to you, would you pray this prayer with me? Because I know I need it. Heavenly Father, help me to be in awe of Jesus again. 
Help me to wonder, to be filled with wonder of who Jesus is. Forgive me, God, for my sin and my lack of faith. All I can do is offer up these scraps. Help me to believe, God, that there's grace even for me. Fill me with your grace, God, and fill me with your spirit this morning. Help me to follow you even when the crowds don't want to. We pray this in Jesus' good name. Amen.